Good evening and welcome. I'm Brian Ogilvy, Professor of History and Chair of the Department of History at UMass Amherst. I'd like to begin this event by acknowledging that our university community stands on Nanatok land, and I'd also acknowledge our neighboring indigenous nations, the Nipmuc and the Wampanoag to the east, the Mohican and Pequot to the south, the Mohican to the west, and the Abenaki to the north. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Viral Exchanges, Hotspots, Spillovers, and the Reordering of Life, a lecture by the historian and filmmaker, Professor Greg Mittman. Dr. Mittman is the University of Massachusetts Amherst Five College Graduate Program in History's 2021 Writer in Residence. Each year, the program invites a historian whose work addresses non-academic audiences to join us for a week of meeting with students and faculty, along with a public lecture. Past writers and light residents have included Charles C. Mann, Jill Lepore, Robin Kelly, and Adam Hochschild. Tonight's event is presented by the Feinberg Family Distinguished Lecture Series. Offered every other year by the Department of History at UMass Amherst, each iteration of the series focuses on a big issue, a topic of clear and compelling concern. The events invite us to consider historical context, analysis, and experience to better understand this pressing issue. This year's series is titled Planet on a Precipice, Histories and Futures of the Environmental Emergency. It seeks to deepen our understanding of the environmental emergency through historical analysis and in so doing to envision constructive paths forward. To view recordings of previous events and for more information about the final events, a screening and discussion of Dr. Mittman's award-winning film, The Land Beneath Our Feet, please visit the Feinberg series website or take a look at the comments if you're viewing this event on Facebook or YouTube. There, you'll also find information about how to view the live closed captioning and how to listen to tonight's event in Spanish. Before we begin, I'd like to thank the more than three dozen university and community partners who collaborated with us to make this series possible. I would also like to particularly thank the Amherst Jones Library, who is co-presenting tonight's lecture as the opening event of their On the Same Page community read of Station Eleven in conjunction with an NEA big read, Pocomtuck Valley, organized by the Pocomtuck Valley Memorial Association and 40 community organizations and supported by the National Endowment for the Arts. It is now my great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Dr. John Higginson, Professor Emeritus of History at UMass Amherst. Dr. Higginson is also a research fellow in the College of Human Sciences and the Department of History uh, at the University of South Africa in Pretoria, South Africa. He is the author of A Working Class in the Making, Belgian Colonial Labor Policy, Private Enterprise, and the African Mine Worker, 1907 to 1951, and Collective Violence in the Agrarian Origins of South African Apartheid, 1900 to 1948, as well as numerous articles and book chapters. Presently, he is at work on a book tentatively titled The Hidden Costs of Industrialization, Southern Africa and the Global Economy, 1860 to 2007, and a joint project with Dr. Joy Bowman, Engineering Empire, the South African Odyssey of American Mining Engineers, 1893 to 1976. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Higginson. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Dr. Ogilvy, for that uh, generous introduction. Uh, I have the distinct pleasure to uh, introduce our distinguished visitor and lecturer, Dr. Uh, 
Greg A. Mittman, the Villas Research and William Coleman Professor of History, Medical History and Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, he has also been a visiting fellow at many distinguished institutions, including the, the, Rachel, the Rachel Carson, Cent Carson Center uh, at the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, the Charles Warren Center uh, for American History at Harvard University, the Max Planck uh, Institute in Berlin, and the Shelby Cullum Davis Center uh, for Historical Studies at Princeton. Uh, he's also authored uh, a number of important and compelling um, monographs and articles, um, which uh, have compelled us to think anew about the world in which we live. Um, to name a few of them, uh, I will start with uh, the state of nature, ecology, community, and American social thought, 1900 to 1950. Uh, he has also uh, written Breathing Space, How Allergies Shape Our Lives and Landscape, which is certainly anyone who lives in the Pioneer Valley, that's a book that that's a must read. Uh, given the, uh, the fact that pollen doesn't blow out of the valley. Uh, he, he's also engaged uh, in a number of new projects, which will be forth, which are forthcoming. Uh, Empire of Rubber, Firestone Scramble for Land and Power in Liberia, which forms the, the deep background for the, uh, the substance of his talk today. Uh, and also another important uh, monograph that will be coming from Princeton University Press uh, entitled Bloodborne Invasion and the Politics of Disease. Um, he's also a filmmaker, uh, which is a, a rather uh, daunting um, occupation for an historian, but uh, as you will see uh, later on, uh, he's done a, a, a good job, a wonderful job at documentary filmmaking. Um, on Thursday, for example, March 20, uh, 25 March at 6 p.m., uh, you can see the land beneath our feet. Uh, his uh, most recent documentary uh, contribution to the plight of people in Liberia. Um, so uh, I'm without uh, belaboring this, I, I, I'll come back a little later with uh, a few questions of my own and some observations about his talk, but you didn't come here to listen to me. Uh, rather, you came here to uh, listen to our honored and eminent guest, uh, Dr. Mittman. Thank you so much, Professor Higginson, for that uh, generous introduction. I'd like to also express my sincere thanks to Jason Morali, 
Jess Johnson, Heidi Scott, Erica McIntyre, the University of Massachusetts Amherst Department of History, faculty and students from across campus, the Feinberg Family Distinguished Lecture Series, and the Writer-in-Residence Program for the opportunity to share my work and engage in conversation over a week of events. It's an incredible honor to do so. And I thank all of you as well, joining us virtually this evening. And since we are, this is a virtual event, um, it might be really nice if you could post on Facebook or um, YouTube uh, where you are located um, at this moment. So we get a sense of the kind of community that we are all, all are um, connected virtually um, at this time. Tonight, I'm going to try and weave together a talk that will speak to this year's Feinberg series theme, Planet on a Precipice. Share some material from my new book, Empire of Rubber, and offer a few reflections on writing. And I begin this talk with a word, hotspot. It is a little word that covers a lot of territory. Hotspots can mean a place where fires flare, where a novel virus appears, where human rage erupts. In this turbulence of ecological, public health and political crises, hotspots portend disaster and death. Yet too often hotspots and the menaces they pose are only made visible, only made objects of concern when they threaten the lives most valued by the powers that be, which in today's world means those who control and govern access to capital. Within the structures of capitalism, that is to say within the forms and relationships that make up its changing ecologies, undeniable continuities have persisted over the last 400 years. Inequalities underpinned by white supremacy have produced different valuations of life. In early January of 2020, firestorms such as you see here continued their month long sweep across Australia turning as the environmental historian Nancy Cushing described and I quote, the sun red, the moon orange, and the sky an insipid gray. The harshness and extent of the smoke from a continent on fire was unprecedented, a word we would hear again as 2020 progressed. As the fires raged, many residents of Sydney and other Australian urban centers whose situation and pocketbook afforded it, donned face masks or stayed indoors to protect themselves from the health risks posed by breathing in the fine-grained particulate matter, smaller even than a red blood cell or most bacteria that filled the air. Media images of blazes imperiling and disrupting the lives of charismatic koalas and white middle-class Australians prompted the world to take notice. But for decades, the threats posed to life on a warming planet were already felt by many, mostly non-white people. In the 1995 Chicago heat wave, black residents 
on Chicago's South Side lost lives and loved ones in numbers disproportionate to their share of the city's population. At the 2009 United Nations Climate Summit in Copenhagen, a protest organized by the Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance raised the rallying cries of no to climate colonialism, no to climate genocide. With an accord that set a global goal to limit warming to two degrees Celsius, the result was, in the words of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and I quote, to condemn Africa to incineration. A decade later, in 2019, a report from the UN Climate Change Secretariat referred to Africa as, quote, an exposure and vulnerability hotspot for climate variability and change impacts. The racial geography of the Anthropocene, an epic in which humans have become a geomorphic force in planetary scale change, is marked by the uneven and unfair distribution of death, notes the geographer Laura Polito. By the end of January 2020, the world grew anxious as another threat, a rapidly replicating single strand of RNA encased in a protein capsule surfaced in Wuhan, China and quickly spread to 18 countries. The virus, somewhat like the particulate pollution from Australia's bushfires and coal-fired power plants, can work its way deep into the lungs, inflicting damage on the body's respiratory and cardiovascular systems. Again, what the air contained was toxic, putting healthcare professionals and other workers deemed essential, grocery store clerks, warehouse laborers, meat packers, and delivery people, among others, at greater risk of exposure and death. In the United States, these fault lines of exposure have closely tracked around racial and socioeconomic divides. Some environmentalists, scientists, and journalists considered the pandemic crisis to be an ecological crisis. Western news outlets were quick to identify wet markets in Wuhan, bustling with people, domestic animals, and wildlife, including bats, pangolins, and snakes, as hotspots where viruses might spill over from animal to human. Underlying these news stories is a one health paradigm wherein the health of all life on earth is interconnected. In this scenario, habitat loss and species extinction are considered to be causal factors in the emergence of novel viruses like COVID-19 as industrial agriculture and extractive industries gobble up the last remnants of pristine nature and force human and wildlife, humans and wildlife into closer contact. Such spillover stories trade upon a discourse of purity and pollution, whereby viruses transgress species divides. In declaring COVID-19, a public health emergency of international concern. On January 30th, 2020, the World Health Organization 
put the emerging infectious disease into a category that includes bioterrorism and environmental catastrophes. Think Bhopal and Chernobyl. But spillover stories can too readily stigmatize people and regions, placing blame for outbreaks on foreign bodies, humans and non-human, deemed a threat to settled life. Former US President Donald Trump inculpated China for the virus's origin. His words incited fear and hatred and continue to spur horrific attacks on people of Asian descent. It was not the first time a politician would capitalize on an epidemic to incite hatred and fear. In the summer of 2014, as the worst Ebola outbreak in history devastated the West African nations of Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone, Trump, who then had his eyes on the White House, added to the already widely circulating public fears, suspicions, and scapegoating, tweeting, and I quote, stop all flights from Ebola-infected countries or the plague will spread inside our borders. Racial stigmatization by Trump and others prompted a widespread social media campaign among people in the Liberian diaspora. I am a Liberian. I am not a virus. And we'll watch a clip right now. Imagine someone saying to your child, you're from Liberia, so you have a disease. It happened yesterday to my daughter in school. My child came home hurt and upset. I am hurt and upset. We are Liberians, Sierra Leoneans, Guineans, and Nigerians. We live in a region that has been devastated by a deadly disease, but we're not all infected. It is wrong to stereotype and stigmatize an entire people. Remember, we're human beings. I am a Liberian, not a virus. I'm a Liberian, not a virus. I am a Liberian, I'm not a virus. I'm a Liberian. More often than not, wealthy nations see zoonotic diseases, see like SARS, Ebola, and Zika as problems of the other. Often crafting origin stories, stigmatizing disease laquelles like Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Latin America. Um, and this slide is a slide produced by the EcoHealth Alliance, which uh, does a lot of work on emerging infectious disease. 
And it indicated the, the risk of a spillover event uh, in their view. Um, and the yellow is the highest risk. And you'll see that um, you know, the, the greatest threat according to Equal Health Alliance of emerging infectious diseases largely uh, come from the global south. Such explanations of disease origins scapegoat the other, diverting attention away from how the industrial ecologies of the plantation, factory farm, meat processing plants, and service sector have been complicit in the making of hotspots both within and outside their borders. Just four months after WHO declared COVID-19 a public health emergency of international concern, new hotspots appeared across America. These were made visible by another breathing trouble, the murder via asphyxiation of a black man by a white Minneapolis police officer. The violent end on May 25th, 2020 to George Floyd's life sparked flames of protest against an ongoing national illness. For eight years, the Black Lives Matter movement has cast a harsh light on the hotspots of violence, racism, and police brutality that people of color in America face every day. Floyd's dying words, I can't breathe, speak to centuries of structural violence and racism spawned by the theft of indigenous land and the enslavement of black people upon which a violent white settler colonial nation was built. This history accounts for the huge economic and health disparities suffered by non-white people in America. Mortality rates among African-Americans for asthma in the US are almost three times those of whites, and they have been for decades. In the case of COVID-19, Black, Latino, and Native Americans are hospitalized at rates roughly three times and die of the disease at rates more than twice that of whites, according to the most recent CDC data. Zip code in America is a prescient indicator of the hotspots where structural racism, inequitable environmental burdens, and inadequate access to medical care produce glaring racial health disparities. The hotspots proliferating across the globe admittedly signal a planet in flux, a changing climate, emerging diseases, habitat fragmentation, species loss, toxic exposures, and more. But these are not just perturbations in some idyllic balance of nature. They are foremost products of capitalism as an ecological regime, eruptions flowing from deep fissures in nature-society relations produced by capitalism's insatiable appetite for cheap land and labor, that lay bare what the feminist science studies scholar Michelle Murphy calls the economization of life. In the logics of unbridled economic growth and development, some human lives are worth more than others. In this epic of the sixth extinction, some species must die so that others deemed more valuable may thrive. Among the spate of outbreaks that have erupted across the globe over the last decade, the 2014-16 Ebola outbreak in West Africa is particularly illustrative of how racial capitalism, 
born in the industrial ecologies of the mine and the plantation, has contributed to the making of hot spots in the US and in the reaches of American empire. While the number of cases, roughly 28,000, and deaths, just over 11,000, in Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone may seem unimpressive compared to those of the current coronavirus pandemic. At the time, the outbreak raised great fears across the world. Patient zero and spillover narratives focus on the first case of the Ebola outbreak, an 18-month-old child in a small village in Guinea, believed to have been infected with a virus by a zoonotic leap from bat to human. In March of 2014, after the virus had spread to Guinea's capital city, Conakry, the Ghanaian Ministry of Health alerted the international community to an unidentified illness in their midst. It was quickly confirmed to be Ebola. But it was not until August that the WHO declared the Ebola outbreak a public health emergency of international concern. By then, Ebola had spread to all three capital cities of Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. Up until then, the outbreaks elicited little international concern. Only when two American healthcare workers, Dr. Kent Brantley and a nurse, Nancy Ripple, American medical missionaries working for the NGO Samaritan's Purse became infected with the virus, did global alarm bells go off. I can have that next slide. Um, and this is a, a, an illustration by that New York cartoonist, Andre Carrillo, that was done at the time to really uh, capture the ways in which as soon as white medic healthcare workers uh, were at risk and, and had contacted the virus, the international media quickly became a, they quickly became a focus of international media concern. While by that time, hundreds of West African healthcare workers had already died. What does it take for an outbreak to become visible? Whose lives have to be at risk or perceived to be at risk before the international community responds? I was in Monrovia in 2014 when the first deaths from Ebola occurred in the city's Redemption Hospital. When I returned to the US in July, I was disconcerted by the initial Western media coverage. A New York Times piece, for example, blamed West Africans for alleged irrational fears in attacking international healthcare workers, while other news outlets zeroed in on supposed exotic burial customs said to contribute to the outbreak spread. Missing in those initial stories was how people on the ground were working to combat the virus. A small film team made up myself, Liberian cinematographer Alex Wiakla, Ush as is known in Liberia, my New Zealand filmmaking partner, Sarita Sigel, and a UW Madison graduate student and Liberian citizen, Emmanuel Yuri, decided to follow the outbreak on the ground in Liberia and the US to capture as many voices and perspectives from Liberians as we could gather. Many of the critiques leveled against Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra Leone in the international headlines of Western news media that we see in the following clip 
might now be leveled against the US and its response to COVID-19. We're gonna play a clip from a, this film we made in the shadow of Ebola um, that illustrates some of this. I'm so downhearted. I just seen Liberian get dying, dying, dying. It's so pity. Every day to take your friend Bali, go care to the cremation site. It's now a pleasure something to say be taking Bali. I don't pray that they that they validate the country. Because some people now they are still in denial stage. They are still in denial stage. They have come and assemble PHP, the male welfare die. And when Paris. I took the body, I gave the help to Paris. do not enter the room. We lock the door, everything. We had to send a team to go there in the room. The moment we left that same day, he went, he bust the door, he went inside, and his body is in the car. You see the challenge? You tell people, don't do this, they park behind you and go do it. Don't do this, they say, we are eating free money, the government is lying. If the government is lying, why should we be taking such body a day? Database is 17 now. The disbelief and fear and the circulation of rumors and conspiracy theories that we initially saw unfold on the ground in West Africa during the Ebola outbreak have been repeated today in the United States, driven, however, by different economic, historical, cultural, and political circumstances. We now understand here in the US how difficult it is also not to be physically in contact with loved ones, as Joseph Yuri shared with me during the midst of the Ebola outbreak, as you'll see in the following clip. I think that the children should still go to school because even if they stay home, they can still get in contact with Ebola. So I think that they should go to school. It will be better. I, I said God's going to protect us because it's just hard to resist touching human beings. Yeah, so it's just hard. I remember speaking with a New York Times reporter at the height of the epidemic who was focused on West African burial customs and watching of the dead as though this was some exotic cultural practice. But I shared with the reporter how it was important for my mother and me to wash my father's body when he passed. The longing to touch a loved one, especially when they had just departed is a universal human experience. Western media also criticized lack of trust in government in Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra Leone. And yet we see how that same mistrust in government exacerbated the situation in the US during the midst of the COVID pandemic. In Liberia, one of the real turning points in the outbreak in terms of building public trust occurred after the government imposed a quarantine on West Point, the largest and poorest community in the capital city of Monrovia. And we're going to show a clip from that right now. Police enforced a quarantine on West Point, and the whole thing escalated. Yeah. 
what do you want the government to do now? Shortly after this, the Liberian military fired into a crowd gathered at West Point, tragically shooting and killing a young teenage boy, Shaki Kamara. The quarantine was soon lifted, and it was a real turning point in the outbreak as we saw communities mobilize and take action, turning to trusted leaders, radio DJs, musicians, local activists, and building trust at the local level before there was a significant outpouring of international aid and support. And the following clip, I think, illustrates that well. Even though things are bad from now, we still have people living and we still have people making lives. We have so many Liberian local NGOs working, creating awareness. the need to be able to access information, again, that would aid in the enhancement of and fast track of containing this virus was very necessary. So when we put the call out to get in qualified professionals who would come in, they all came specifically as their patriotic duty. They're coming because they want to be a part of the solution. It is what it is. Hot 107.9, your boy DJ Blue, man. Uh, from the top of Broad Street, check this out, man. Ebola is real. Take precaution. Watch your hands. Stay at home a little bit. You know, let the virus subside and then we can start our normal day activity. Really, this demon called Ebola took them both. A kid just lost a mother. A mother lost a son. Africa lost another. The battle just begun. Got my gloves on my hands, but tonight for a different reason. Reason. We might turn to a deeper exploration of these comparisons of Ebola and COVID-19 in the discussion, but I want to offer a historical autopsy of the Ebola outbreak in Liberia that returns to some of the themes about hotspots, racial capitalism, and industrial ecologies with which I open this talk. The devastating consequences of the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, where case fatality rates averaged 50%, was not about the biology of disease, of the disease, but about structural inequalities that in the case of Liberia were the result of neo-colonial extractive relationships. One in particular, that between the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company and the Liberian government had significant ramifications for the inequitable divides that sowed the seeds of civil war and the worst Ebola outbreak in history. In a world where racial capitalism structured the flow of global finance in the late 19th and early 20th century, land and labor became the resources upon which a struggling black republic saddled with foreign debt sought to maintain its sovereignty as European nations in a scramble for Africa carved up the continent. And again, the next slide. Um, and you'll see, this is a map of um, West Africa in 1926. And you'll see Liberia, which was an independent sovereign nation, is surrounded by, on all sides, by British, French, and Portuguese uh, territory and colonies. 
In an effort to secure American protection from Great Britain and France, which vied for its territory, as well as capital for development, Liberia negotiated in 1926 an agreement with the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company that gave the American corporation access to 1 million acres of land to grow a source of rubber free from British control. The Harvard-trained historian, sociologist, and civil rights activist, W.E.B. Du Bois, initially threw his weight behind the Firestone experiment in Liberia. And my thanks to the University of Massachusetts Amherst Libraries and, and the Du Bois papers for allowing me to um, use this image. In 1924, on his first trip to Africa, sent by President Calvage Coolidge as the envoy extraordinary and minister plenipotentiary to honor the second inauguration of Liberian President Charles Dunbar Burgess King, Du Bois advised the Liberian president that his country must, quote, have capital for her development. Faced with a choice among England, France, and America, Liberia would be wise, Du Bois advised King, to choose white American investment, which he believed posed the least threat to the country's sovereignty and self-determination. Du Bois initially held out hope that white American capital, working in partnership with, quote, Black educated men, both African and American, might create an industrial plantation of mutual dependence and prosperity like none yet seen. Almost a decade later, he looked back with regret on his advice. I had not then lost faith in the capitalistic system, he wrote. World War II proved a boon to Firestone Tire and Rubber Company as its rubber plantations in Liberia took on strategic importance in a world at war. When in December of 1941, the Japanese military bombed Pearl Harbor and began its sweep across the Malay Peninsula, the United States' worst fears were realized. In a matter of weeks, a region that supplied 90% of the world's natural rubber supply had fallen to Axis powers. Rubber was the single most important commodity during the Second World War. A single battleship consumed 70 tons of rubber in its manufacturing. One ton went into an armored tank. The American military demanded six times the amount of rubber per person that it had in World War I. Liberia, one of the remaining strongholds of allied natural rubber production, took on outsized importance compared to the 43,000 square miles it occupied on a vast continent of nearly 12 million square miles. Um, and this is a, a photo of Franklin Delano Roosevelt with Liberian President Edwin Barclay in 1943. Um, it was the first time a sitting president from the United States had visited the African continent. Um, and it shows you the strategic importance that Liberia began to play at this important moment in time. Wartime demands for rubber helped to lock in place a set of relationships between Liberia and the US, between white managers and black laborers. Um, sorry, and between humans and the natural environment in this small West African nation that had emerged as a pivotal place in the wartime global economy. The 
The intimate relations forged on the plantations among people, trees, parasites, chemicals, and machines brought benefits and burdens that differentially affected lives and ways that reveal the racial logics and values of Firestone's corporate culture. Roughly three of every $4 made in Liberia found its way to Firestone's parent company in the United States, which amounted to close to half a billion dollars in profits between 1944 and 1971. Firestone sold itself on a promise of benevolence to Liberia, but life and work on the plantations was highly segregated by race, a fact that led Du Bois to become one of Firestone's most outspoken critics. At their peak in the late 1940s, the Firestone plantations employed approximately 30,000 Liberians. Next slide, please. The majority of whom were tappers. Next slide. Next slide, please. Earning 18 cents per day. Um, and you see these uh, young men, perhaps even boys. Um, each of these, get, uh, are, these are six gallon pails of latex balanced on a, a bamboo pukul stick weighing approximately 100, 100 pounds. So you can imagine the kind of compression that's happening on, on their shoulders as they had to transport this latex often miles. And they were supervised by roughly 125 white managers. Next slide. The racial geographies visible on the 200 square mile enclave and embedded in the structure and management of the plantation workforce were greatly shaped by the racial attitudes of an American company in town. Akron, the center of American rubber manufacturing. Next slide, please was home to one of the largest centers of the Ku Klux Klan, north of the Mason-Dixon line. On the Firestone Plantations Company in Liberia, white management performed minstrel strolls in blackface at the whites only Firestone Staff Club. And this next slide. Uh, this is the golf course uh, behind the Firestone Staff Club that was built um, for white management um, on the Liberian plantations. Housing and healthcare for white management and black laborers was segregated. Next slide. This is, uh, the, the first slide was of, of white management housing and this is of worker housing. Many uh, Liberian laborers rejected this tenement style housing. By the 1940s, um, Firestone started building more kind of pseudo African villages, um, which they thought would um, be more accommodating to Liberian laborers. Medical surveillance of drug of and drug testing on workers' bodies was routine. Such conditions reinforced the impression of African-American diplomat Edward Dudley in 1951 that Firestone was, quote, transferring US Jim Crow policies to Liberia. Millions of rubber trees, heavy of Brasiliensis. 
clone via bud grafting from a couple dozen high-performing wind-resistant individuals had come to maturity in the war years. These engineered clones yielded more than triple the amount of latex harvested from trees planted from seeds in the earliest years of Firestone's operations in Liberia. The health of those clones and of the human workforce hired to plant, tend, and harvest the valuable latex pose some of the greatest challenges to Firestone's grand experiment in industrial engineering. The company's investment could easily be wiped out by a fungal blight of black thread or brown root rot sweeping through stands of genetically identical trees. On the plantation divisions, where thousands of laborers and their families lived in close-knit quarters and where tappers assembled in groups of several hundred each day, conditions were white ripe for widespread viral infection. An outbreak of smallpox or measles could decimate the company's labor force, already in short supply. Firestone made significant investments in its medical services and supported biomedical research to keep pathogens at bay. Fungi and viruses or protozoa and flatworms could sap the productivity of plants and people and consume the income of a Firestone subsidiary that in the 1950s accounted for 10% of the company's total net income. Firestone Liberian rubber plantations yielded gross profits that could average 150% over cost. Its Harbell plantation, Hospital grew from 60 beds in 1940 to 167 beds in 1959. The white two-story building had the best diagnostic equipment and laboratory services in the country and a surgical ward with a modern operating room. A maternity clinic adjacent to the hospital had capacity for 66 women. At each division being tapped, a small clinic and dispensary staffed by a dresser treated minor injuries and illnesses. The company established a formal nurse training program in 1946 and a course of study for laboratory technicians in 1950. Nine foreign doctors oversaw a medical staff of nearly 200 Liberian nurses, sanitarians, and laboratory technicians by the late 1950s. Between 1940 and 1960, Firestone's medical services at the Harbell plantations and its much smaller counterpart in southeastern Liberia uh, at Kavala grew from roughly 300,000 patient visits per year to nearly a half a million. For some workers, the free medical care that Firestone provided employees was a benefit that outweighed trifling wages. If you or your child was sick, you took them to the Firestone Hospital for tree, free treatment, remembered Siawa Gay, who bore 10 children on the plantations. So the little money we were making was big in our eyes because Firestone was taking care of us and our children even during illness, she remarked to me. In a country where maternal mortality rates still rank among the highest in the world, access to Firestone's maternity services could be a real draw for Firestone workers. Throughout its history, the Firestone Plantations Company promoted its investment in medical care and research 
to advertise its goodwill and humanitarian intentions toward Liberia. And this began with the very foundation of the, of the plantations in 1926. And this uh, following clip, which we'll see, This is a clip from a 1926 Harvard medical expedition that was uh, there on behalf of Firestone. It was a, undertaking a complete biological and medical survey of Liberia. Some of the best minds in tropical medicine were on this expedition. And what you see here is Max Thyler, who would go on to win the Nobel Prize for the development of yellow fever vaccine, work that began on this expedition, taking a, a blood sample from this young boy. Um, and so you see uh, the way, and so they were moving through the landscape, um, sampling for, for parasites and at the same time, uh, testing experimental drugs on the population. And the next slide. Uh, shows Max Thyler um, uh, at work in the field. Behind the company's slick advertising campaign was a darker reality. Healthcare, like much of life on the Firestone plantations was deeply segregated. Black patients, except when in need of surgery, were confined to the Firestone Hospital's ground floor. Thus, when the Honorable Harold Fredericks, Liberia's Consul General to Great Britain, was injured in a severe car accident in December, 1941, the highly respected citizen and responsible Liberian official found himself denied treatment in the much better upstairs section of the hospital. Monrovia's African nationalist newspaper asked, and I quote, what kind of democracy the United States is fighting for when in our own country, segregation is being practiced against our leaders? But the existence of a color line in Firestone's Hardbell Hospital merely scratched the surface of how the company differentially treated and valued black and white bodies on its plantations. In 1931, Firestone physician Justice Rice, along with American malariologist Marshall Barber and James Brown of Nigeria's health department, conducted the first clinical trial on the plantations, testing the IG Farben anti-malaria drug plasmaquine on men, women, and children living in five Firestone Division camps. Despite its wide, widely assumed highly toxic side effects, the medical team reported no harmful results. The promising results they obtained shaped the medical regimen that Firestone adopted to manage life on the plantations in the war and post-war years, a regimen that underscored how the health of white employees took precedent over that of Liberian laborers. Domestic workers, the company advised, posed the greatest health threat to white foreign staff. House servants constitute a reservoir from which the mosquito frequently transfers malaria to the employer, reported a 1941 Firestone's operation manual. The company insisted that staff ensure servants compliance Servants were to take with their evening meal a daily dose of quinoplasmaquine, a mix of plasmaquine and quinine, and be examined periodically 
for evidence of, quote, contagious infectious and venereal diseases. Daily chemical cleansing of the blood of black servant bodies with plasmaquine, a drug whose routine use was considered to be ill-advised by the Office of the Surgeon General of the US Army, subjected Liberian domestic workers to long-term and toxic exposures solely for the protection of white personnel. Meanwhile, white foreign staff took atropine three times a week to guard against malaria. Recommended for use by the US military in the suppression and clinical treatment of malaria, it was a much less toxic drug that alleviated symptoms, but did little to prevent the spread of the disease. White bodies in but not of the tropics were thought to be prone, were thought to pose little threat of contagion in the racial logics that govern plantation life. Out on the plantation divisions where most laborers lived far removed from the housing quarters of white management, the medical protocols applied were different. Men seeking employment were subject to medical inspections and detailed medical records were kept on all Liberian overseers and headmen. Any prospective laborer showing signs of elephantitis, hernia, leprosy, and other afflictions was not to be employed. Laborers diagnosed with tuberculosis at the main hospital were immediately dismissed once the, since the disease was, quote, incurable, progressive, and likely to spread infection. Dressers visited the camps daily. They administered quinine twice each week and hookworm treatments once per month and regularly inspected workers for yaws and other diseases. Laborers who reported sick or failed to show up to work were also treated. Dressers also conducted on each division a monthly census of men, women, and children and a sanitary inspection of wells, houses, and latrines. Twice yearly, Liberian men, women, and children living on the divisions, which in 1947 amounted to approximately 40,000 people were immunized against smallpox. Every three months, one white Firestone staff member observed, the doctor comes out and gives the boys injections to clear up their blood, although what drugs were involved and for what reason is unknown. The concentrated reservoir of bodies, blood, and parasites contained on the Firestone concession was yet another biological resource for the plantation's extractive economy. In 1946, as a memorial to his father and in commemoration of Liberia's upcoming Centalia celebration of independence, Harvey Firestone Jr. pledged a quarter million dollars for the establishment of an institute for research in tropical medicine in Liberia. The donation was a direct outgrowth of the mutually beneficial relationships that Firestone had developed with Harvard and other prominent American research universities. Liberian President William Tubman gifted 100 acres of land on the Firestone concession adjacent to the plantations as the site for the Liberian Institute of the American Foundation for Tropical Medicine. Tubman hoped the Institute would help advance the general health of Liberia's population. That hope was quickly dashed. 
The facility became an enclave of white scientists from a handful of largely American universities who did little, if anything, to educate or advance the medical and research careers of promising Liberian staff. Its proximity to the Firestone Plantations, to Roberts International Airport, and a rainforest with a large chimpanzee population offered access to both infrastructure and experimental subjects, both animal and human, in the pursuit of research on malaria, trypanosiasis, schistosomiasis, and other tropical diseases. Um, this is an image uh, taken from the 1970s on the grounds of the Liberian Institute of Tropical Medicine at a time when the New York Blood Center had established ViLab, which was a US research facility for um, uh, research and efficacy uh, testing of a hepatitis B vaccine, uh, and which also contained the second largest experimental chimp colony in the world. Um, and again, this, this uh, lack of building medical capacity um, and training of Liberia staff continued well uh, at, into the 1970s um, at this institution. Some studies such as that of parasitologist R.S. Bray carried out at the Liberian Institute of Tropical Medicine were highly suspect forays into racist science. Bray intentionally infected 30 Liberian staff and residents living in the surrounding area with Plasmodium vivax, a strain of malaria not present in Liberia to determine whether black West Africans were susceptible to the parasite. Such investigations both on and off the Firestone plantations demonstrated the callous disregard with which Western biomedical research in both the past and present subjected people of African descent to experimental exploitation and inequitable medical treatment. Born of plantation slavery, this disturbing legacy endured in the medical services provided by Firestone in the name of welfare capitalism and in the scientific racism and racial inequalities of American healthcare. Foreign corporations like Firestone Tire and Rubber Company and the Liberian American Swedish mining company Lamco were the primary drivers and investors in biomedical research and clinical care in Liberia after the Second World War. Company hospitals and the Liberian Institute for Tropical Medicine, funded by Firestone, created enclaves of biomedical research, experimentation, and care, catered to company workers and Liberian elites, but did little to build medical capacity in the country or service the primary healthcare needs of the general population. When the Ebola outbreak hit in 2014, the country had fewer than 100 doctors for a population of more than 4 million people, a consequence of 14 years of civil war and a much longer history of foreign direct investment, largely American, in Liberia, in which the different valuation of life, calculated according to enduring racist logics, was built into the industrial ecologies of work on the country's rubber plantations, iron ore mines, and more recently, oil palm plantations. 
To build the scenes and stories I have shared with you this early evening, I have drawn from a wide variety of letters, diaries, documents, novels, industrial films, personal testimonies, conversations, and my own travels throughout Liberia. What experiences and inspirations have influenced me and my writing? Certainly learning from other writers through reading and conversation has played a role. But mostly what has transformed my writing is the experience of making documentary films. In teaching and working with filmmakers, including Judith Helfland, Alex Rivera, and most of all, Sarita Siegel, who has been generous with her time and knowledge, I have gained new perspectives on the art and craft of storytelling. In making films, I've learned and come to appreciate what is needed to imagine and build past and present worlds. Filmmaking and writing, at least for me, require cultivating an attention to detail, learning to take in everything around you, and anthropologist Anat Singh's words, this is the art of noticing. Listening and looking for the little things, a gesture of the hands, a person's favorite phrase, the color and texture of the soil, and countless other things reveal what you were not expecting to see. Writing and filmmaking also, I believe, call for empathy and humility when coming face to face with people and places unknown? Can I listen with care? Can I set aside what I think I know to learn from what I encounter? I hope my work moving between film and the written word reveals some insights into a planet on a precipice. As a historian of science, medicine, and the environment, my writing is driven by my passion and hope that understanding the past can build more just futures. Just a few weeks ago, a new Ebola outbreak erupted in the rural community of Gueke in the Nazarakora prefecture of Guinea. It is a region on the border of Liberia and Cote d'Ivoire, a part of the Nimba mountain range, home to a biodiversity hotspot as well as some of the largest iron ore deposits in West Africa. In 2013, the governments of Liberia and Guinea negotiated new concession agreements with mining companies ArcelorMittal and BHP Billiton to exploit the iron ore reserves in the Nimba mountain region. In Yakepe, once a flourishing mining community on Liberian side of the range where Bethlehem Steel and the Swedish government built a corporate enclave similar to that of Firestones in the decades after the Second World War, ArcelorMittal is bringing in foreign expatriates to build a new company town complete with its quote, white man's hospital to serve them as a Liberian friend working security there recently told me. The reopening of abandoned mining sites as global iron, prices, iron ore prices rose made resource extraction profitable again and began a new wave of such. Across the border in Guinea, a ring vaccination program is underway, administered by Guinea's Ministry of Health and WHO. It is an effort to distribute a vaccine to contain another Ebola outbreak 
from spreading beyond the Nizirokora prefecture. How might we come to understand the ecologies involved in the production and containment of such outbreaks, Ebola, Zika, COVID-19? These are viral exchanges arising not just from spillover threats of emerging infectious diseases and biodiversity hotspots around the globe, where habitat fragmentation and deforestation are allegedly increasing human wildlife encounters. They are also, I suggest, outbreaks arising from the parasitic nature of capitalism to ecological regimes, where in the case of Ebola, biomedical and resource extraction, civil war, decimated infrastructure, structural adjustment, and health inequalities created conditions of life conducive for a virus's emergence and spread. The unruliness of a virus has made visible what the privilege of whiteness continually seeks to obscure any race. As geographer Ruth Wilson Gilmore writes, capitalism requires inequality, racism enshrines it. In the engineered worlds of capitalism making, differential valuations of life, of black, brown, and white bodies are made and remade. To see the pandemic as an ecological crisis and fail to see the circuits of global capital, labor inequalities, and racial disparities that have produced uneven geographies of hotspots in the United States, in the United States and across the globe is to ignore the ecologies of economic and racial injustice that permeate both this pandemic and climate change. More than 100 years ago, in the midst of a world war, W.E.B. Du Bois asked, and I quote, how can love of humanity appeal as a motive to nations whose love of luxury is built on the inhuman exploitation of human beings and who have been taught to regard these human beings as inhuman. Inhabiting a planet on a precipice, living in the midst of a pandemic, as a virus and police brutality have exposed yet again the violence of racial capitalism in America for all to see. It is a question to which we, yet again, need to return. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Mittman. Uh, that was indeed a very thought-provoking talk. And before I make my observations uh, and raise a few questions of my own, I would like to say that uh, those people in the audience should submit your questions to the, the Q&A form uh, where you can find it in the uh, Feinberg series. We have a few questions already, and I certainly will air them uh, after my observations. But again, thank you, uh, Dr. Mittman, for such a fine and uh, uh, revealing talk. So I have three points I want to make, or three observations I want to make after having listened to uh, uh, Dr. Mitt, uh, Mittman's present, oral presentation after reading 
uh, a number of his works and uh, the talk that he gave today. Uh, my first uh, observation uh, is, draw, is drawn from Honoré de Balzac, uh, from Père Goriot, his uh, wonderful short uh, little novel that was written at the dawn of industrial capitalism. Uh, and in that, Balzac puts in the, in the mouth of one of his characters this saying, behind every great fortune lies a great crime. The next point that uh, I would like to, our uh, next theme of my observations that I would like to make is that uh, it is the lot of the poor and the powerless to have their stories told by someone else unless their plight becomes generalized by circumstances that their exploiters can no longer control. Uh, and I'll come back to these in a more, I'll elaborate on these, these three uh, in a moment. The third and final one is that uh, Professor Mittman has told us, a, has given us a chapter in a story that in many ways uh, is one that is very old, but also very unknown. Um, American intervention in European colonies in Africa and later in its, apparent, in its apparently independent countries and in its own colony in Africa in all but name Liberia has, a long, uh, has had a long provenance. Um, presently, uh, it is the source of American anxiety uh, um, over the current presence of Chinese, Indian, uh, and Israeli corporate entities in what it perceives as its, uh, its spheres of influence. Uh, to give you a sense of just how this reson has resonated since the last, the turn of the last century, uh, let me go to um, someone I'm familiar with, but uh, some of you may not be, and that is uh, John Hayes Hammond Sr. Uh, John Hayes Hammond Sr. in 1919, on the eve of this historic uh, Harvard uh, expedition to um, Liberia in 1926, was arguably the wealthiest man in the United States. Uh, he was also the it was the largest donor to Yale University uh, in the 20th century. Uh, he had also been the consulting engineer for Cecil Rhodes' uh, Consolidated Gold Fields in South Africa. And in 1919, at the close of the war, uh, as uh, the European countries lay devastated from the carnage of the war, uh, Hammond said this, and I quote, it is the so-called backward nations, i.e. South America, Africa, and Asia, that America must look to for markets for the sale of her manufacturers. These countries possess enormous natural resources, but these resources are as yet undeveloped and consequently of no value. Their exploitation would involve the expenditure uh, of colossal sums of money. Where is this money to come from? Obviously, European financial centers can no longer be relied upon to provide capital for the development of these countries. And it is to the United States that they must look to, must look 
for financial assistance. So that's, that's our friend, uh, John Hayes Hammond uh, Sr., who we'll come back to in a moment. But I also want to go to uh, someone who appears in uh, Professor Metman's film and his forthcoming book, Rob, Richard P. Strong, uh, who uh, in some ways points the way uh, for us. But I also want to go to uh, someone who was his contemporary, one Colonel uh, Kowal Henry Kowalski, who was basically the advance man for Leopold Der, the sovereign king of Belgium, uh, who uh, in the uh, latter part of the 19th century uh, turned uh, the, what becomes the Congo into a charnel house uh, uh, in order to acquire uh, huge amounts of rubber. The, uh, in many ways, Congo was the first charnel house created by the insatiable needs of industrial capitalism for rubber. Uh, and in 1906, uh, as international and Belgian commissions honed in on the rubber atrocities visited upon, visited upon Africans by King Leopold's Congo Free State officials, Leopold's advance man, uh, Henry, Colonel Henry Kowalski, was instructing the king on how to sidestep popular opposition. And this is what our friend Kowalski says. He says, Open up a strip of territory clear across the Congo from east to west to the benefit of American capital. In this manner, you will create an American vested interest in the Congo, which will render the yelping of English agitators and Belgian socialists futile. And uh, in fact, as uh, Kowalski was saying this, it had already happened. Uh, Nelson Aldrich, uh, the father-in-law of John D. Rockefeller, and John D. Rockefeller himself uh, had, had coalesced to invest uh, large amounts of money uh, in Leopold's Congo Free State in the form of a, a diamond company called Fourmenier. Um, in the same year of Kowalski's proposed public relations stunt, Richard P. Strong, uh, one of the American protagonists in Professor Mittman's film and forthcoming book, uh, uh, who was an imperial consul first and a medical doctor subsequently, injected 24 captured Filipino uh, nationalists at the Bilbilid uh, prison in Manila, the capital of the American colony of the Philippines, with a cholera vaccine that turned out to have live cholera cells in it. 13 of them died. A scandal was created. The US Senate demanded an investigation, which our friend Nelson Aldrich, John D. Rockefeller's um, father-in-law and the sort of uh, head honcho of the Republicans in the Senate managed to quash. Uh, however, no investigation took place as a result. Was strong concern to minimize white American casualties in the tropics, or was the Bill Belied incident merely an accident? 20 years later in Liberia, uh, was strong and the Harvard University uh, uh, mission acquiring medical knowledge of universal value on the cheap, 
while ensuring that Firestone's profits from rubber cultivation would not carry the moral and social cost of sick and dying Liberians. Uh, and also at what cost was silence purchased in this instance? Have contemporary Liberians acquired agency, quote unquote, uh, via uh, this important research that uh, Professor Mittman has engaged in? Now, point number two, uh, the lot of the poor and the powerless. How and when do people anywhere, especially workers, exercise agency? Agency falls short if it fails to explain why people believe they can change their lives for the better and why they often have to resign themselves to small victories and big defeats, uh, especially if they, were, they are, are only one or two generations removed from a rural existence. I think that uh, Professor Mittman's uh, slides and film uh, uh, excerpts demonstrate that very powerfully. Uh, how do they make the mental transition to a different cultural and psychological landscape? Or do they? As a historian of working classes and pop working in popular classes beyond Europe and North America, uh, I thought at one point, at least when I was writing the, my uh, monograph on the Uno Minier de Haute Katanga and the African mine workers, I thought I knew. But after uh, reading some of uh, Professor Mittman's work uh, and also reflecting on what I wrote some uh, 40 years ago, I'm not so sure anymore. But uh, we'll come back to that and hopefully questions will arise around that. Uh, finally, as, as he said, American intervention uh, in European colonies is an old story, uh, an old and continuing story. Um, while uh, Firestone was uh, uh, creating a, a kind of warrant for rubber pr production and collection uh, in Liberia, the United States was also uh, gleaning or uh, extracting the copper cobalt uh, that, it, that it needed to win the Second World War from the Congo uh, to the point uh, that uh, at, one, at one point after the war, uh, there's this wonderful uh, political cartoon in the Belgian newspaper, Belchois, which shows King Badouin attempting to, uh, to try to enter uh, the uh, uranium mine at Chinkalobwe in the Congo, and American MPs are forbidding him to come in. Uh, uh, so the world, at, as we know it, in many ways was reshaped uh, by American uh, military and economic interests uh, between the First and Second World Wars and, in, and during the Cold War. Uh, what we have to discern, as, as Professor Mittman has so uh, beautifully demonstrated, is how this, what does this mean for us in relation to the rest of the world? How do we uh, bring an end to the misery that many people around the world have uh, endured at our expense? So 
those are those are my questions and my points. And so I'd like to to turn to the uh, some of the the uh, questions that people have already uh, um, put forth. Uh, and these uh, these are, are I'm assuming we don't have a provenance for them, but here are some of them, and I'll put them to you, uh, Professor Mittman, and you can sort of, uh, would you like me to read them all at once, or would you like to me to read them one by one? Um, maybe we, I, I mean, I can see them in the chat as well, and so maybe um, we can bundle those first couple, which are about um, the place of historians and um, spillover narratives, um, and yeah. Okay. We, That's fine. Yeah. So if we read that. Okay. Would you like me to read one? the questions aloud so that those people. I think for our audience, them? we need to do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let me, so let me read them. The first one is uh, how can students of history participate constructively in the effort to combat viral threats and the racist narratives that usually accompany them? Okay. That's a yeah. good question, especially when we consider what's going on uh, in cities like San Francisco and uh, elsewhere with, with regard to Asian Americans. Uh, right. to, what, to what extent are the quote unquote spillover narratives that Professor uh, Mittman has mentioned, uh, which as you say, tend to scapegoat certain groups and nations being challenged by historians? What to your mind is a more accurate narrative about COVID-19? Okay, uh, we'll, then we'll do one more and we'll come back to the others. Uh, okay. How have institutions of higher education helped to construct an image of permanent insecurity in the global South, uh, an image which upholds white supremacy? How can those institutions challenge that imagery? So that's, yeah. there you are. Great, thank you, thank you. And thank you so much, Professor Higginson for really um, putting the talks in a, in a much uh, broader global context about uh, American intervention and, and, and capitalism between the two world wars. Um, very, really, really helpful. Um, the, the question about how can students of history participate uh, constructively to, to, in an effort to combat these kind of racist narratives that emerge around viral threats. I mean, I think really, you know, and that's one of the things I tried to do a bit in the talk is, is to show the ways in which these are really enduring. I mean, we saw the kind of same stigmatization happening against uh, West Africans during the Ebola outbreak as we see right sure. now, sure. You know, the kind of stigmatization that's happening among people of, uh, of Asian descent. Um, and, and as as medical, you know, as someone in, in the field of medical history, this is, you know, this goes w way back, right? And we can, right. Um, right. you know, look at um, the third uh, plague pandemic, and 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 in terms of Chinatown and, and San Francisco in their uh, early twentieth century, um, and there again the stigmatization. Uh, against uh, uh, Asian and Asian Americans that, that happened around um, uh, plague in San Francisco in, in the early 20th century. Um, mm -hmm. And so, 
Um, you know, there's a there's a kind of common there's a kind of common pattern that emerges, and I think we need to really, as historians, uh, push back early on in the ways in which because we always see um, in these um, epidemic narratives that unfold, the, you know, the first move is always around origin stories and around scapegoating. Right. Um, right. And, and I think one of the, to, to the second question really about what's a more accurate narrative about COVID-19, you know, there's why, why are, why do we get so hung up upon these origin stories? Um, mm -hmm. And about, you know, which immediately, um, you know, as we saw in the case of COVID-19, you know, a blame game towards China, um, rather than thinking about, wow, what, what is it about American, the American healthcare system, about economic, you know, the structure of, of economic life in America that has cre created, you know, some of the largest um, debt, you know, number of deaths uh, yeah. in the world. Um, and, and really looking at these issues around structural inequality that are, you know, so much more important than these kinds of um, origin stories. Um, so, you know, I think those are um, some of the ways in which we, as or at which historians can respond. So the last question about how, um, how institutions of higher education have helped construct an image of permanent security in the global South. You know, um, it's a, we see um, this notion that we uh, impose and, and, you know, I think um, global health programs are an example of this as, <laughs> these other countries need saving and they need our intervention to be saved, right? Um, when you look, for example, at the Liberian response to the Ebola outbreak, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, you were speaking about agency, you know, Dr. Hizem, and, you know, there was mobilization on the ground, you know, among building trust among community leaders within Liberia, right? If, long, you know, before there was a lot of, of international aid. And in the end of the day, a lot of the Ebola treatment units that were built by, by the U.S. Um, weren't ever used. And, and so, you yeah. know, there, there, there isn't this saving the, throughout, our, we see the history of American invention, this, this notion that, you know, a country like Liberia or, or other countries need saving becomes a, a mechanism of, uh, and a justification for intervention. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. which is which is often um, not necessarily needed. Um, right. And so. which has cost many American lives if we think of that in relation to the Iraq war and the war present current war in Afghanistan. Right. And I, you know, one of the interesting things I'm seeing and, you know, uh, you as a, a as a scholar of Africa as well, I, I don't know if you what your thoughts are on this, but I mean, one of the things I find so interesting about the different geopolitics of the COVID-19 versus Ebola epidemic is that for the, the COVID-19 um, pandemic has largely affected European nations, the US, you know, it's obvious uh, on the African continent, South Africa, of course, but a lot of countries 
on the African continent have not been nearly so affected, whether that's a result of less testing, a lot, you know, less testing, um, whether it's a result of, um, you know, different climatic circumstances. I mean, there's a rate, uh, there's a lot of questions oh, yeah. about yeah. that yeah. right now. And there's a big um, seroprevalence study that's being done by the African CDC to see how prevalent COVID really is in, a, uh, in across Africa. But one of the things that I find really interesting is, is it's, it's creating a different narrative among um, African intellectuals and public health experts of a real push to like decol in this kind of really kind of decolonize global health. And, and mm -hmm. you know, we see the creation of the African CDC and again, you know, pointing to, um, you know, speaking to agency of, you know, African institutions really looking to themselves, right? And in, in terms of combating this, the big issue of course is uh, right now that is uh, a real source of contention is the inequitable access to vaccine distribution right. as wealthy yes. nations hoard all the vaccines so that, right. um, you know, uh, poor nations aren't, don't, aren't able to have access. That's, uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And of course, uh, the, uh, the Chinese, current Chinese government has seen this as a unique uh, opening, so to speak, in terms of uh, distributing their uh, Sinovacs uh, right. on the African continent. And of course, that's only aggravated this sort of uh, US-Chinese rivalry uh, in terms of spheres of influence. And it's, it's really hard to know where this, where this will go. Uh, will it culminate in some kind of, uh, you know, world war or, or, uh, or what? Uh, you know, a lot of speculative fiction writers are having a lot of fun with it, but you uh, let us hope that your conclusion that uh, that the spread of such a horrible virus will compel um, African countries to unite uh, among themselves to uh, to stop the spread of it and to find a cure, perhaps that uh, uh, in their own labs and hospitals. Um, that's that's a hard that's a hard slog though for them. Uh, since structural adjustment uh, in 82, but that's a, that's a question we could be all night about, uh, talk about all night. So uh, should we move to the next set of questions? Looks like uh, we're being asked to, to wrap things up. I guess we're past time here. Um, oh, we are. I see. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so okay. Uh... Well, let's get in the last, last uh, two questions. Um, Scholars have used the term Anthropocene to describe the current geological epoch due to the drastic human-induced changes to the natural environment. What do you think of this term and its possible limitations? You, meanwhile, have used the term Plantationocene. What value does this latter term have? Okay, now I'll read the next one. Uh, when it comes to under-recognized emergencies, how might we increase their visibility without playing into the politics of privilege? Uh, for instance, by emphasizing the white people dying of Ebola 
and avoiding the opposite danger of exploiting or commodifying images of extreme brutality toward people of color. That's in, that's a, <laughs> in many ways, that's an amusing uh, question, but I, let's hear what you have to say, Dr. Mittman. Yeah, um, just to, to wrap things up here, I, uh, the question uh, on the, the Anthropocene, I mean, what are its limitations? I, I think the, you know, the, the, the problems with um, scaling up to the planetary level with any term, whether it's the Anthropocene or the plantation is seen, uh, you know, um, the problem with it is that um, in scaling up to the in scaling up to the global level, it flattens um, localities, right? And and so mm -hmm. we really don't begin to appreciate. And and this is one of the problems with the Anthropocene, or, or why you know people were pushing back, and and why is the ways in which it the there you know who's the we in the Anthropocene? Thank um, you. And right, mm -hmm. it, it completely um, erases the ways in which um, you know largely white wealthy nations have created um, the the you know ha have been the greatest consumers uh, and 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 terms of natural resources and created this while. Um, you know, for example, people on the African continent are the ones that will suffer the most from climate change. Um, right. So, you know, it doesn't get at the, the, the racial um, injustices um, that are present, you know, within these environmental catastrophes. The plantation is seen, um, we, we did a two-year seminar and we were interrogating it. We're trying to understand whether this was a useful term or not. Um, I'm, I'm sure, I think that has some of the same problems as, as the, the plantation, as the Anthropocene. I mean, it, it mm -hmm. does get in issues around racial capitalism, but it also erases the very different experiences um, across the globe of, of uh, and the enduring emotional trauma of what the plantation, of how the plantation resonates with right. people of color right. today. And so um, who is doing what to whom? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, and to the, to the latter question about how we might increase visibility without playing in the politics of privilege, you know, I mean, one of the things that we, you know, I was very aware of um, when we were doing this film on Ebola was, you know, I was very, um, critical of what I call, what you sometimes call as epidemic porn or this kind of gratuitous <laughs> use of images of people dying, right? To sell, you know, media and so forth. Um, and, and, and so to really try and as we were trying to do, you know, find librarian voices on the ground and show the ways in which people were taking agency you know, over their um, own lives and, and, and trying to, to combat this. At the same time, yeah, there were there's um, really horrific things happening, but also looking to the ways there's, because as you said, you know, whether we're dealing with an epidemic or we're dealing with a company like Firestone, you know, there's always agency among those people that are being uh, impacted. Yeah. And, and there's always yeah. points of resistance that we need yep. to be looking for and, and highlighting and making visible. 
That's so, right. Um, with that, I I want to I want to thank thank everyone uh, for participating. Thank you for for your wonderful introduction and moderation and and really helpful uh, intervention and comments at the end. And um, so, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Mittman. You've done us a great service. Thank you. Thank Good night, you. all. Good night.